0: Take that!
1: Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm also joined with my new co-host, Ben Reschlag. How you going, Ben?
2: Hey, Theo. Good to see you again.
1: Uh, So, look, this is essentially a relaunch of the show because, uh, as most of you who listened to the first show would know, um, I initially did the podcast with my father um, and co-author of my book Jeff Clark Um, uh, but he passed away a few years ago and since then I've been working on relaunching or redoing a second edition of our e-book Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Thinking. It's uh, now been published. Um, You can buy it online just as an e-book on uh amazon kindle google play lulu and it's also hopefully going to be out on ibooks and some other ebook vendors but you can find details um of that on the website www.skepticsfieldguide.net um so as i've redone the book uh, and added some new fallacies to it and and also an introductory section uh also it's 3 dollars us so it's pretty cheap so go buy a copy um because I added some new fallacies to it that we'd worked on on the website and, um, and now they're in the book, and we didn't actually finish our initial run of the podcast where we what we wanted to do was to go through uh, essentially like an audio book of the book to go through all the different fallacies that are in the book and then provide some extra examples and some conversations around it. So we never got to finish that. So this second additional, second version of this podcast, we're going to re uh do some of the fallacies that Dad and I and also Ben guest hosted on some of those that we never did. Uh some of the new fallacies that are in the second edition of the book. And also then what I thought I'd do is instead of um redoing the fallacies that uh had been done in the first podcast, I'd also reissue some of those original podcasts as classic episodes and perhaps even put some commentary around them and things like that, but I'd reissue some of those as well. So this next series of podcasts will, should go through the entire book um, and also then just talk about fallacies and critical thinking in general. So that's certainly the, the intention of this one. In this first uh, relaunch episode, the fallacy I want to look at is appeal to tradition. Uh, and so because we didn't do that in the first podcast, I'm going to start now with a reading from the book Appeal to Tradition Other Terms and or Related Concepts Cultural Origins Argument from Tradition Appeal to Antiquity Appeal to Customs Our Way or Their Way is the Best If It Ain't Broke, Don't Fix It Description When an advocate either promotes or denigrates a way of doing things by citing its use in a particular culture, group or tradition, they are making an appeal to tradition fallacy. An appeal to tradition is not in itself a valid way to resolve a contentious issue, the critical thinker will challenge this fa- fallacy. Example. Chuck A Ahissifit is a member of the Land Use Planning Committee, which was set up as an advisory group to the jumped-up local council. The committee is having its inaugural meeting. On the agenda is the election of office bearers. Chuck states his position. I think that we should operate as a collective. We shouldn't have office bearers. The Western Way has failed. We should meet together as the Plains Indians of North America did they simply sat and talked. They talked until reaching consensus. Their cultural values were more humane than ours and we should follow their example. Comment. Somewhere in Chuck's rhetoric there may be a point, but he is not making it. He is appealing to the cultural origins to both denigrate one way of doing things and to promote an alternative way of doing things. Such an appeal has no merit. There may be some value in simply sitting and talking with a view to reaching a consensus. But that procedure needs to be argued on its merits rather than accepted because some group or another at a time in the past under certain circumstances are said to have used this method. Claims such as Chuck's often prove to be false anyway under close examination. In the present example, and if the other members of the Land Use Planning Committee were both fair-minded and sceptical, they might ask Chuck to explain in more detail just how his proposed meeting style would work in practice. They would also subject his explanations to critical inquiry and would not let him get away with rhetorical assertions. They would examine his proposal in the light of the terms of reference of the committee and practical issues such as the time available to members to meet. They might even agree with his trial of his approach on selected occasions. However, such trials would involve a proper evaluation and comparison with other modes of decision making. This methodology is bound to work. It is, after all, an approach to inquiry that can trace its roots back as far as the ancient Greeks. The appeal to tradition fallacy tends to be subject to whims and fashions. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the transatlantic industrial cultures were usually held up as positive examples for all humanity. In the late 20th century, many saw indigenous cultures as worthy of emulation in all things. Critical thinkers, when confronted with a fashionable cultural origins fallacy, can always stir the pot with counterexamples and substitutions. Counterexamples are useful devices for challenging facile assumptions. For the sake of argument, consider the following rather simplistic example. An advocate suggests that people living in industrial societies should all adopt a personal, totemic animal. Why? Because this is a common spiritual practice of many indigenous peoples. Skeptical participants in the discussion could then make counter-suggestions to highlight the weaknesses in the advocate's position. They might suggest within our cultural group we should draw lots to determine who amongst us should be richly murdered to propitiate the gods. Why? because this was a common spiritual practice of many indigenous peoples. In the context of the example given above, another member of the Land Use Planning Committee could suggest to Chuck that after they try the Plains Indians' methods of consultation, they should give some other cultural methods a try out during the life of the project. Perhaps Genghis Khan's approach to project management, or a Viking approach to land acquisition, or the Spanish Inquisition's approach to cohesion and motivation. Okay, so that was a reading from the book. And again, on sale on Kindle, Google Play, lulu.com for com for three ninety nine. Amazon. Oh, Amazon Kindle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I hope readers or listeners picked up on the uh, ironic statement in there where uh, in the book we talked about other trials using an evaluation comparison of other modes of decision-making would definitely work because obviously that's what the ancient Greeks used to do. So also another appeal to tradition. You've got to be on the lookout for some of those uh, things in the book. So what I want to do now is um, have a look at an audio clip um, example. And the example I've looked at uh, comes from a recent Australian government inquiry into the um, efficacy of homeopathy. So for those who uh, are not sure about homeopathy, it's an alternative treatment that is based on finding out what a... um, what some of the symptoms of an illness are and then identifying a substance that also causes those symptoms and then you dilute that substance in water or another substance but usually water to the point where it effectively there's zero so no, active no particles ing- left yeah no result. particles no active ingredient you've in got to the
2: successing bit as well you've
1: got to success it, that's right you've got to shake it in 10 times in a very specific way
2: against the bible if you want to be
1: traditional, oh, against the Bible, nice, yeah, very important. And who th- who said it wasn't witchcraft? Uh, and and then um, you do that, and then you take it, and then of course you know it, it, you get better. Is is the whole um, the whole thinking behind it or the whole process behind it? And of course, anyone who, who reads the history of it will understand that it kind of made sense back in the day in the 1800s when people didn't have an understanding of chemistry and physics, or they certainly didn't have our modern understanding of how um, atoms work and of dilutions and things like that. It also probably seemed to be quite successful compared to, you know, some of the techniques they used back then such as leaching. So homeopathic hospitals, you know, where all they did was give you a um a placebo essentially, really isn't going to have much of an effect uh besides what your your body naturally does and if the place is clean and so on you might recover naturally. But certainly in today in today's um in, in this day and age, uh homeopathy um, you know, makes no sense in terms of the science and also then the evidence around it. Uh, in terms of decent empirical studies has started to really clearly show the direction um, uh, the science is taking us of people who study, which is the more rigorous the controlled trials of homeopathy, the more clear it is that it doesn't have any effect other than uh, beyond placebo. But anyway, the Australian National Health and Medical Research Council conducted a uh, produced a preliminary report. It came out about a month ago. And of course, this got picked up in the media and was debated on TV and so on. And a couple of the clips... Uh, that I've got to play are uh, from some homeopaths defending homeopathy, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, and fair, fair enough, that's their right to do so. Um, and so let's have a listen to a couple of these different uh, clips. So, this first audio clip is uh, from uh the australian homeopathic associations anna lamaro and she was on uh the project which is a tv show here in australia like a kind of a news media
2: it's a chat show yeah chat show
1: comedy chat show that uses the news to talk about stuff um and also hat tip to uh, the skeptic zone podcast for the audio because that's where i pinched the audio from because they played the entire um uh, clip so hat tip to the skeptic zone for this bit of audio
0: Because and we're talking beyond, uh, and, and beyond the molecular level, and, we're talking about preparations that have an effect beyond well, the molecular level. No, but there is no such thing. Well, be that as it may, I'm sure that homeopathy, having survived 200 years of, in fact, you know, highly oppositional uh, public court, um, will survive beyond this, and and clients and patients will continue to make a choice uh, for homeopathy.
1: So that first clip was uh, Anna on the uh, project and the second clip is Anna again on ABC uh, breakfast in the morning and again using the same kind of argument.
0: But what I would say is before you declare negatively for a therapy which has been in use globally for 200 years and which has a very strong following, particularly in Europe, you know, there are 56,000 medical practitioners practicing homeopathy in Europe. There are 100 million Europeans who regularly use homeopathy, not to mention uh, the subcontinent and also all of Asia. In Australia, about 1 million uh, Australians use homeopathy. So you cannot. Uh, Discount a whole therapy on the basis of a chosen few systematic reviews now.
1: Okay, so there are two different clips from Anna, and the obvious thing to talk about there is the uh, appeal to tradition, um, but also the other thing we'll talk about a little bit there is the appeal to popular Popularity, opinion as yeah, well. I was say yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. So the appeal to tradition she makes, I mean, if anything, I mean, yeah. so it, oh, it, without. It's a fallacy straight away because you're essentially saying it's always been this way. We did this; would survived 200 years. Yep, and that's a fact. It doesn't tell you whether it's been, it works. It doesn't or not.
2: tell. You, yeah, exactly. You know,
1: um,
2: to popularity. Is this they? Um, yeah, so I,
1: lots of hundreds of millions of people use it. Yeah, people, um, therefore, it must be correct. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's like no, and, and then she dismisses a systematic review. Well, actually, the systematic review is the bit where you work out whether it's actually.
2: True, yes, or not. true or not yeah
1: because humans how do i put this without being rude a biased i was going to say f- stupid <laughs> but okay we'll go with biased uh, humans have psychological biases and things like that and that's the whole point of doing science is to rule those things out and the other point i'd make about appeal to tradition is if anything in medicine and science that should count against it you know because it, one of the thing you think about how many medical procedures and, and practices that we do that worked out 200 years ago that continue today.
2: Well, that's the the common thread through all alternative therapies, is that they don't progress, they're never refined, and um, they're never abandoned either. They just keep on going as opposed to medical science, which makes advances, and therapies and drugs that don't work are discarded. Yeah. So there's that falsification constantly going on in the background.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's the issue Is and it probably gets back to something that I've tried to highlight in the book um, in the, in the earlier section before we look at fallacies which is if you're not married to the outcome, so the belief but you're married to the process i.e. doing science then you don't really care that much if the thing you used to believe or the thing you believe gets overturned. So, you know, the physicists at CERN who are looking were looking for the Higgs boson. If it turned out that they couldn't find it, you know, when they did those, been running those um, particle collisions. Oh well, they can keep looking, or they can go, okay, something else is going yeah, on there, So let's find out what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, so when you don't care about the outcome, now look again, it's it's almost impossible to not care about the outcome because we're humans and that's what we do. But if you have that in the back of your mind and you're aware of your biases, so one of the things that, um she talks about there again is that appeal to the popular opinion in terms of the um, number of people who are doing it and that claim gets made all the time around lots of different things you know. but in, in this particular case you, you again you go yeah well none of those people are science trained well most of them aren't you know the 99% there's the placebo effect
2: in oh, and play. There's also the other thing that most people get better as well. There's
1: a regression yeah. fallacy yeah. so regression to the mean it's called so people aren't aware of that one which is um, any illness over a period of time, well, unless it's, you know, critical or whatever, will go, you'll go back to your, your average, what your average health is. And so you're going to start getting better. So, and a good example, this happened to me recently, actually, about, um, three, four weeks ago, I had a really sore throat one day at work. It, it started coming up at work and I was like, you know, bloody hell, sore throat. I don't want to get sick. And I mentioned it to a colleague and they swore by, um, getting this, uh, Betadine throat, sore throat gargle. And I was desperate, so I thought, what the hell, I'll I'll get it, you know, and it was like 10 bucks, and you could gargle it straight away, and um, it made my throat throat feel good for maybe two minutes or something like that, because it, you know, cooled it and had an anesthetic effect. But then my sore throat basically took 48 hours to get better, and I gargled that one religiously kind of thing. So I'm like, did that work or not?
2: Yeah, you know, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah.
1: because I've had sore throats before that yeah. got better within twenty-four hours. I've but had um, some that took, you know, fifty hours, a hundred hours. So who? So I got no idea. But this, she swears by it. But I'm like, yeah, you got no idea whether it works or not. She or he? I shouldn't name names or give away genders. See,
2: so but this this comes back to another interesting aspect of this kind of debate is um, justification.
1: Yes, like post hoc justification. Yeah. yeah, like a well, rationalization. And
2: a the there's, there's like a in the scientific process there's a hierarchy you follow of of experimentation and all that sort of thing and it's like you it's like a heuristic for deciding um whether your results are good results or not because it's all about um justifying your position and people who are appealing to tradition are uh, are failing in that in that aspect, yep so Um, I think it was uh, Bertrand Russell who had his list.
1: That sounds impressive, and no one's gonna double check it if we listen to this show. And and
2: Popper had his list as well, and so did Richard Feynman. But they it basically basically all the smart scientists we know off the top of our head had a list.
1: Yeah. (laughs) A hierarchy they went through. Yeah, Yeah, but I mean and and that's the issue. It's and it really comes down to in terms of and again, this is why the homeopaths and we'll have a listen to another thing in a second. Protested the way this um, study was undertaken because they said they've ignored all this other evidence and they talk about oh look instead of me uh, giving it away well let's listen to a couple more clips where again um, they move on to another kind of a fallacious bit of reasoning to, 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 to reject this um, this assessment by the Australian uh, National Health and Medical Research Council. So the next clip is uh, Greg Hope from the Australian uh, Homeopathic Association. I think he's the president um, and he's uh, also Um, defending homeopathy, unsurprisingly. Greg Cope from the Homeopathic Association is standing by the practice.
2: Yeah, homeopathy is absolutely an effective treatment and people come to us because of the success that they have in clinic. Uh, What the NHMRC have done has looked at a specific type of research um, but unfortunately not looked at the clinical success.
1: It's a question of evidence though, isn't it? I mean, the the NHMRC has gone out to look for the evidence and found that there was none there. Can you then point to credible scientific evidence that explains how homeopathy
2: works? Uh, No one can point to scientific evidence that explains how homeopathy works uh, because that's not something that's able to be explained. Uh, Like many things that we do, we don't know how it works, but we certainly do know that it does work.
1: So I just love that bit. It it just summarises it perfectly, which is it's not something that's able to be explained uh yeah but
2: there's other stuff that we don't know how it yeah. works either therefore therefore it must work it it's must like work, no no yeah.
1: if you can't explain how it works uh then and, and you're saying it's it's he's, it's not that we don't know how it works he's saying you can't explain how it works so he's yeah. not doing what's, what's called special pleading he's saying we can't even actually really study it effectively and he actually talks about the clinical efficacy of it i.e. like in you know, a clinical case studies you know I've treated 10 patients and they all said they got better and it's like yeah that's that's why you have to do the rigorous double-blind, yeah. randomized, placebo-controlled. The difference
2: trials. between putting a bunch of anecdotes together. Yeah, and,
1: yeah. yeah, It's and it's just more impressive-sounding name for an anecdote. And again, that's the the point is humans are biased, flawed individuals, and we have observer bias. We have the placebo effect. So unless you rule that out by doing a randomized, double-blind, controlled trial, you can't do it. And that, so what the NMAHRC report did they again so it's like a meta-analysis a, a, um, and so they looked at the quality of the trials and so the reason why they didn't use those it's simple, it's probably the best way to think of it, these kind of big trials or big studies is like this what they do is they categorize evidence of different levels of quality and the gold standard in medicine is a randomized double-blind placebo controlled trial because that removes any potential observer bias or any placebo effect at all in there and what you find is, and this happens in other areas like um, acupuncture and things yeah. like that, you find well, a big e- effect.
2: Even even in uh, normal pharmacological yeah study any that's insane. right
1: any science study yeah sorry the less rigorously controlled the trial is, what you tend to find is a bigger effect of saving a positive hypothesis because we can't help it. Doesn't matter how um, unbiased you think you are, if you have a particular. Um, slant, you want your experiment to work.
2: Yeah, so and the and less it,
1: rigorous, the more likely is you're going to get a, a positive outcome.
2: And in addition as well, everyone loves publishing positive.
1: That's right, Yeah. So Sorry, there's no a there's no one, no one a file draw effect, that's right. Yeah. So you've got a bigger bigger result, so more yeah, likely to get published.
2: It's like P-hacking, they call it P-hacking.
1: Yeah, that's right, the P-value, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so so the issue is, so what ha- so when you're doing these big systematic reviews... One of the trends you look for is which way is the evidence going? So as the research tightens up its controls and as the research gets more and more rigorous, do the effects start to disappear? So if the effects start to disappear and you start getting more and more negative results, that's that's the research going in the direction that, oh, maybe there actually isn't a real effect here. If the rigor, the rigor, it gets in, increases, but the, re, the effect still remains, then that starts saying, oh, okay, maybe there's a real effect here. So when, um, you look at other areas of research and it's a true thing, something that actually exists in the real world, it doesn't matter how tight the controls get, you still see an effect. And here what happens is, um, as soon as you tighten up the controls, it starts to be clearly become a placebo. The main, the other problem that happens now is in things like, um, sham acupuncture trials, they published the results showing that um, sham acupuncture, which is, you know, fake acupuncture versus real acupuncture, is no different. And they published it saying, even sham acupuncture works. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, that's the point of doing the placebo-controlled trial, is to show that there's no effect beyond this, you know, so you can't win when people yeah, well, don't even understand even, why they're
2: doing it. Even appealing to the placebo effect, that in itself is problematic.
1: Because well, The
2: pl- yeah. placebo effect is just... Um... Background the experimental noise. Yeah, and it, yeah. But
1: it's also unethical yeah. to prescribe a placebo knowingly, um, and then it, it's it, that might make someone psychologically feel better or have lessen their maybe make them put up with symptoms or lessen them. But if it's you know someone's got a serious illness, um, then that's another problem. The other thing he talks about there, and maybe the other woman talks about in the next clip, is um, the idea that it's you know clinical practice and individually diagnosable and things like that it's like yeah but you can go into any pharmacy and find a homeopathic preparation for x you know immunization for y so they so they try and act like you can't test it, but it's like it's no the way they use it is no different than any kind of other doctor prescribing a drug the doctor doesn't give a drug to every patient the exact same way. They look at that individual patient and they prescribe certain dosages and things yeah, like or that. based
2: on their weight or their yeah, sex yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, or, or
1: other, other drugs yeah. they're using. So you can do those randomized controlled trials. It's not a problem. Look, so the next one I'll show you is the um, last clip. Um, again, uh, Anna Lamaro, um, again on the uh, project uh, and talking about um, laboratories and how the laboratories don't have a placebo effect.
0: Above all that, it's clearly unethical to just prescribe a placebo and pretend and fool a person into thinking that you're giving them Uh, an active uh, medicine that might help them. I take exception, absolutely, to, to being cast in this mode of fooling people by prescribing something that's merely placebo. I've been in practice for 34 years and I can promise you that I've never prescribed a placebo. Let's come to the placebo effect. We wish devoutly that the NHMRC had bothered to look at the laboratory evidence and also the veterinary studies, both of which are placebo-free zones. And the veterinary studies, there are 57 valid studies which show positively for homeopathy and a vast range of laboratory studies. The lab bench is a placebo-free zone. Well, does let me tell Anna that she's never prescribed anything but a placebo.
1: So I, I love his follow up there. She has never prescribed anything but a placebo. Uh,
2: that, that point, she raised about um, homeopathy for animals. Beautiful. It's beautiful because yeah. again, it's the um, regression to the mean. Yep. Well, and observer yeah. bias. So yeah. the thing is,
1: the thing she talks about is she says, okay, so there's these um, studies that are done, you know, in petri dishes or whatever in um, laboratories and then also those veterinary studies again. So you think, oh well, yeah, how could there be a placebo effect there? Okay, yes, there's not a placebo effect on the petri dish, obviously. There's no placebo effect on the um, animal necessarily, although, again, there actually is placebo effect on the animal because if you're treating them and patting them, blah, blah, blah. But there is observer bias. So the issue is, if it's not a double-blinded uh, experimenter, if the experimenter knows which which is, you know, getting the treatment and which isn't, then you haven't ruled out the observer yeah. bias.
2: Well, uh, placebo effect's just another word for um, experimental error. Yeah, so that's I'm right.
1: Thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just a particular type of experimental error. There was a um, very famous now um, uh, home- initial homeopathic um, study that was done in the 90s in France. Um, ben- Beniste, I can't remember the guy's name now off the top of my head, um, but there's a BBC Horizon documentary about it. Um, So I'll put it in the show notes, but everyone who's interested in this should go watch the documentary. It's on YouTube, freely available. And they did, I think the study was they tested homeopathic uh, and non-homeopathic preparations on, I think it was like uh, allergens or something, you know, and they actually had to count um, the number of cells that reacted to it and the number that didn't after they used the homeopathic preparation. And they got really astounding results and so then BBC went and investigated it and they used James Randy to help it out as well and James Randi went and investigated in the 90s so James Randi, being the, the arch skeptic and when the BBC went and redid it but using proper double blinded methods where the Person doing the because again, it was actually a person physically counting the things it wasn 't like a machine counting it, but even with a machine counting it, what you want to do is relate any potential bias and make sure that the person who 's doing the statistical analysis and doing the counting has no idea which group a, b, or B was a homeopathic one or not, and so the way they did it it 's worth watching it it comes out that, of course, there's no difference between the two, the control and the homeopathic preparation. So, again, experimental error, observer bias. So that happens in the lab, and it happens in um, petri dishes. It happens in with vet studies and everything like that. Unless you've done a proper double-blinded controlled trial, um, then there's no way you can rule out observer and bias. And the important
2: thing here as well is replication.
1: Yeah, and that's what yeah, they did. They yeah. replicated it, and they couldn't replicate it because... But when they replicated, they improved the methods dramatically. They actually had two different groups analyze the data as well. So they really went over the top. Um, but it's a really good episode. I, I, I highly recommend anyone to go, um, watch it because it's pretty clear this is what happened. And you can see the researchers that have a vested interest in it. Not because they necessarily even believe in homeopathy, but it's they're running the experiment. You want to see positive results and things like that. It's very hard to, um, to, uh, avoid that observer bias. Um, yeah so look uh that's probably enough look at the um appeal to tradition and um observational bias and oh sorry observational uh selection observer bias um the other thing I wanted to do in these podcasts now is to kind of um telegraph what the next episode will be about so probably the next episode 2 will be a bit of a classic episode then episode 3 um, will be on something else, and instead of saying what it's going to be about, what I thought I'd do is I'd play a bit of an audio clip, and then, listeners, you're able to try and use that to guess what the next episode's going to be about, so I can kind of test your skills of identifying the fallacies. So uh, what I'm going to do is play a clip that's going to be in the next episode, uh, the third episode, and you can use that to try and work out what fallacy we're going to be looking at in episode number three.
0: Research into the brain indicates that there's a typical statistic that is used that says that only 10% of our brain is actually used in normal daily life. What do you think the other 90% of the brain is doing or is capable of? Do you think that there are other abilities that people might have that we have not developed? What's your opinion about telekinesis?
1: Okay, so that's going to be a clip for next, for not the next episode, but the episode number three. I'm getting very confused right now. We also intend to try and do this podcast uh, bi-weekly, so it'll be in a fortnight, so it won't be a weekly one. I'm just going to be realistic and put it out there. I wouldn't be able to do that many. Um, So I'm going to try and do it bi-weekly. Uh, Every um, two weeks there'll be an episode. So, uh, thanks for coming along today, Ben. Thanks for having me back, Theo. Excellent. Okay, and until next time, this has been Hunting Humbug 101.